Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You can have a psychopath that is firing on all four cylinders on the psychopathy scale, working in a business and actually wrecking that business without committing any criminal offences at all. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. The month of September is our birthday month, where One Minute Remaining turns one years old. And as a celebration of this for this month, and as a thank you to everybody who listens to this show, I am releasing some special bonus episodes that have been previously only available to subscribers of this show. This is just a small gesture of thanks from me to you for listening to my show. Today's episode is a fascinating one as we delve into the world of psychopathy with a former police officer turned psychologist, Steve Gaskin. So, of course, the show that we create on a weekly basis is focused on incarcerated men and women and the crimes in which they are convicted of. Now, as we know, a high percentage of the people that I speak with say they're innocent, and the show is all about allowing them to tell their stories. However, of course, with these bonus episodes, I like to step outside of what we normally discuss and on occasion look at other people and areas of this world that we look at each week. So today, I sit down with Steve Gaskin. Steve is a former Detective Chief Inspector in the UK's Metropolitan Police Force. Steve is a criminal psychologist, crime expert and consultant for both TV and radio and the Managing Director of The Crime Lab. In this episode, Steve and I discuss the fascinating and somewhat terrifying subject of psychopathy and psychopaths, the traits they exhibit, and what leads someone to commit the ultimate crime of murder. We'll talk about the likes of Ted Bundy and Harold Shipman, as well as some lesser-known individuals and crimes that you may not be familiar with. Now, as a word of warning, there, of course, are topics and conversations around sensitive subjects that some people might find upsetting. So, as always... Listener discretion is advised.
Uh, my name is uh, Steve Gaskin. I was formerly a Detective Chief Inspector at Scotland Yard. What does that mean? Detective Chief Inspector means uh, a senior police investigator. Uh, and I was with the police service for 25 years. And uh, when I retired, I did a number of things. But essentially now I teach criminal psychology uh, with together with my police experience. Fascinating subjects, and I want to dive into uh, all that very soon. But let's let's start at the very beginning. Why policing? Why did you choose policing? I left school with very, very meagre uh, qualifications. And uh, when I was 16, I moved to France uh, in Europe, and I led quite a bohemian lifestyle. And I did that for a couple of years. So I was doing a lot of casual work, working on the race course, uh, a load of other, other, other things. And when I was 18... I kind of grew up, really, and uh, decided that uh, I wanted to go back to the UK. Uh, so I applied uh, from Bordeaux in the uh, in the south southwest for the Met Police. And uh, before I knew it, I was in. And uh, the thing was, is my qualifications were quite meagre at the time. But um, after 16 weeks of training, I came top of the intake, uh, much to the surprise of myself. Uh, and my parents, and that kind of really launched uh, my my career and the academic career that was to come within it. Am I right yeah. in saying that your your father was a police officer? Yeah, uh, my dad was a police officer. He joined in the fifties. And um, what's funny, Jack, is for one day and one day only, I was his supervising officer. I read that. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was a sergeant, and he was a PC. Yeah, yeah. That, that must have been a, that must have been a fun day for you. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Yeah. And a pr- probably a proud day for your dad as well, I'd imagine. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, he was. Um, I didn't tell him that I'd applied for the mat until um, uh, I had an interview, and uh, it was quite interesting, really, because I got in on my own merits. But it just so happened that there was someone on that interview panel that knew my father, uh, and I think that must have helped. You know, that must have helped because I think in the seventies. Uh, when I joined, I think they were very short and they probably took anyone. <laughs> Obviously, when it comes to the police force, there's so many different avenues that you can you can pursue uh, in the police force. Did you know pretty early on that you wanted to get into the detective side of things? Not at all. When I joined, uh, my passion was is I was in uh, I was posted to central uh, a place in central London. In fact, Chelsea, you know where the infamous yep. uh, football team is. And I didn't know because we grew up there. Um, I didn't know too much about cars, so that interested me. And I really wanted to be a traffic cop. Uh, there's a probationary period of two years. However, uh, what happened is. Uh, I was on, you had to go around to different departments and I was in the CMD on work experience as a, must have been about 19, and a serial killing broke. Now, lots of people talk about serial killing in the UK and in Australia. The, the definition of that is someone that kills three people or more over a period of three weeks or more. And there's a guy called Archibald Hall, who was a, uh, a like a British butler working in a very upmarket part of Chelsea and he was blackmailing uh, the uh, the husband or the head of the family called Scott Elliott. He was having an affair, this guy Scott Elliott, and he was blackmailing him. And when he threatened to go to the police, he murdered him and he murdered five of the family. Dear Lord. So straight, I was on that inquiry uh, virtually to the end and my job was just simply to answer the phone. Uh, anyway, during the middle of the night, the suspect rung up 
and um, I tried to get himself to, to get him, to give himself up. Anyway, I located him, and next day on a roadblock, he was arrested. So that was, and then that again, the die was cast. Uh, because I then remained in the CID for the rest of my service. Following the discovery in North Berwick on 16th January 1978, a motor car containing a deceased body, a person named Archibald Thompson Hall, 53 years of age, of no fixed abode, appeared before Sheriff Kenneth Middleton in the Sheriff Court Herrington on a petition containing a charge of theft of property in England. He is in custody and will appear again in a week's time. I picked up my gun. And I dumped it, and I shot him through the head. I shot him again, and then again. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I mean, that must be, although obviously a terrible subject, it must be very exciting to be in the midst of something like that, something so serious and, and trying to track this person down and, and get them arrested. Yeah, because, I mean, you get you get a lot of training, but you're never trained for something like that. Um, even the more experienced people and the person that was in charge, uh, you're never trained for something like that. So not only was it quite interesting, but I was quite interested to see the sort of chain of command uh, how how that worked, uh, and also the trust that was was put in me. And of course, it, 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 I found it quite fascinating. And it's a question that I've asked myself, and I'm still asking myself: is why is it uh, that someone um, has the ability to hold someone's life in their hands and actually extinguish that life? Uh, so that's something I've carried with me uh, for the whole. And that's that interest I have. Uh, is of great interest today. And in fact, when we finished uh, this conversation, I'm taking those skills uh, to uh, a company, an ordinary company, uh, and I'm setting up a huge crime scene and uh, they're going to investigate it. Uh, fingerprints, blood spatter pattern analysis. Uh, so, uh, and that's based on the first murder case that I investigated. So, it's one of those things, I suppose, that once it's in you, it, it never, ever leaves. It never leaves. 
That's uh, investigative ability, first of all. Yeah. And then secondly, the uh, the psychology of uh, of crime. And you make an interesting point there where I've often thought about this because of the, the work that I now do interviewing these men and women who are incarcerated for, you know, and basically 95% of them I speak to are incarcerated for murder, uh, whether guilty or innocent. You know, a lot of them claim their innocence. Um, but I've always wondered what what is it that makes someone go that step? For instance, the other day I'm, I was reading a case about uh, a lady who um, police say that she killed her husband for the insurance money. We all suffer financial problems, you know. What makes the difference between someone who's struggling and just tries to make ends meet by, you know, taking on an extra job or something like that to someone who goes, you know what, I'm going to kill this person for that money? Where's that that step that someone's willing to go to to kill for money? The biggest uh, psychological questions you can ask a psychologist and that's really, really cool. So what I'm going to do is I love answering this, and there are thousands of different theories, but let me let me start off uh, by giving your listeners something interesting to consider. So the first thing is there is a, an approach to murders, and it's called the medical legal approach, where there is a relentless search into someone's past to try and find a trigger uh, that would indicate why they murdered someone. That is extremely dangerous because often there's not one. If you look at the uh, UK and uh, you look at uh, last year in the UK in the financial year from um, April to uh, March last year, we had 706 homicides. Two thirds of those were domestic abuse. Of course, that's unacceptable, and we do very little in this country for that. But what it boils down to, and you've hit on a really, really interesting case, is that there are so many different theories, but let me just tell you this one, competing theories. There is a correlation between males killing and uh, land mass and females killing in terms of uh, murdering people they know. And it goes back to our ancestry when we were hunter-gatherers. So uh, in places like Australia, uh, the United States, Japan, there's greater landmass. So the number of kills is a lot higher and it often takes a, long, a lot longer to, 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 to solve them. So that's the hunters and males, their primary objective is uh, the sexual one. Whereas with females, the gatherers, is they often, particularly in the serial mode, will kill people that they know and the principal reason is financial. So that theory hits on and catches uh, that person that you've just discussed. That's one thing. Uh, and the second part of that, again, is fascinating. And it, brought, it goes back to uh, Sigmund Freud. He said that our personality were made up of three different stages, and one of them is called uh, eat, and it's the aggressive drive to do something. So... Um, I'm sitting here now, and um, it's what's the time? Eight o'clock in the morning. So my id might be, I'm going to have a bar of chocolate at eight o'clock in the morning at all costs. So I will go and eat that, and I think I'll seek one of those out. And it doesn't matter whether I'm going to put weight on uh, uh, the uh, material in it is 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 fattening. It doesn't matter. There's two other parts. Uh, to that is the uh, ego and so you've got eat which is that aggressive drive now the ego 
is the balance that says, actually, Steve, you shouldn't be doing that. And the third part, the superego, is the sort of balancing bit saying, yeah, okay, have one, but have one half the size or quarter the size. So when you've got all of those bits at play, a murderer, generally speaking, will only the ego and superego will be blocked out. So there's just the id. In other words, I'm going to do that, whatever happens. So to control that, and, you know, in both of our countries, we've got two things. Is We've got, first of all, uh, there's conscience. And my conscience would stop me from murdering someone. This is wrong to do it. Uh, and secondly, there's the criminal law. Uh, so those are the two things that prevent most people from committing uh, murder. And also what comes into that, the whole thing is peppered with uh, mental disorder uh, as well. Do you think there's also a correlation? I mean, you talked there about the mental side of things. Do you believe that, you know, that your upbringing can be a cause behind some of this stuff? It can be a trigger, uh, but there is not a correlation between the two. In other words, I could be brought up in a violent household, um, be abused as a child and not go on to commit crime. Uh, or serial crime. So that's the first thing. And to give you a couple of really interesting examples, if you look at uh, my subjects and uh, academic research and publication, there's more been published on Ted Bundy than anyone else uh, by far. What do we have here, Ken? Let's see. You always say an indictment, all right? Why don't you read it to me? Mr. You're on ballot for election, aren't you? Mr. Mr. Bundy you got it, didn't you? Mr. Bundy. You told me that you told him that you were going to get me. He said he was going to get me. Okay, you've got the indictment. It's all you're going to get. Let's read it. Let's go. Theodore Robert Bundy, you are charged. Indictment. Two counts burglary, two counts murder in the first degree, three counts attempted murder in the first degree. You did create a media image of me uh, that's far beyond you know the reality of me. Is John O'Connell called the Bundy Monster? That's what he called it. We ought to, so I suggested that John, we ought to get Mattel to make little dolls that walk and say, I'm the Bundy Monster. Ted, how did it happen? Where did it start? How did this moment come about? That's the question of the hour, and, and one that not only people much more intelligent than I have been working on for, uh, for years, but one that I've been working on for years and trying to understand. Um, I belong to the Center for Research for Serial Killing. And I can go into that database and there's more on Bundy. Now, Bundy was brought up in a loving household. He wasn't abused, he didn't set fire to things, he didn't abuse animals and everything else that goes with that. Uh, and it's the same over here. We've got Harold Shipman, uh, a doctor uh, that killed 216, at least of his patients, probably more. I'll come and stand where you'd like me to stand. I've been advised to stand and let you take a photograph and then go away. And I'm sure you've had enough time to take a decent photograph. Been in, uh, is, it, is it possible for you just to Thank say you. anything at back all? into surgery to do my surgery. But you have said you Thank have nothing you. to hide. The Greater Manchester GP, Dr. Harold Shipman, has been charged with another seven murders. Dr. Shipman is already accused of killing eight patients and he'll face one of the largest murder trials in British history. The first witness who's been giving evidence in the trial of Dr. Harold Shipman, the family GP accused of killing 15 elderly women patients. Guilty of murdering 15 of his patients, Harold Shipman is sentenced to life. And again, he was brought up in it. So there isn't, whilst sometimes that can be a trigger, there is not a correlation between the two.
Bundy, his uh, famous quotation is, there's nothing like uh, the experience of holding someone's life in your hands and having the ability to be able to uh, extinguish that life, his words, and quote exactly. Uh, there's a lot over here with gangs as well, is where people are in gangs. And the reason they're in gangs here in the United Kingdom, younger people, is for financial reasons, no other uh, reasons, but they're... Uh, the things they're tasked to do get more extreme and extreme, including then murder. And the, 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 that goes back there to obedience to authority. And it's like the, if you like, the bigger picture is like the analogy with the Nazis uh, in Germany during the Second World War. There were a lot of laudable men and women uh, who committed atrocities that probably wouldn't have done so. Uh, that's obedience to authority. And that's uh, there's some really good videos on youtube and the experimenter for that was a guy called uh, stanley milgram and that's worth watching and that will tell you quite a lot what it is that stimulates some people to commit uh commit homicide so let's talk about psychopaths and psychopathy can you explain for people what is a psychopathy yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, when people, uh, and I have to be careful with this because uh, young people probably haven't seen it, but if you look at uh, the film Silence of the Lambs, one of my favourite films, uh, you've got Hannibal Lecter in there, and a lot of people think psychopaths are uh, people that uh, trap people and it's connected to uh, to crime. Uh, well, in some cases it, it is, and I'm going to give you some interesting uh, international statistics, but a psychopath... Uh, is basically someone uh, that is extremely egocentric. That's the hallmark. And they're only interested in themselves. They see people as, generally speaking, as inanimate objects. Uh, They're highly persuasive. They're very, very impulsive. And there's lots of other things that uh, goes with that to measure um, a psychopath. And I know we'll talk about that. I know you've measured yourself. And I've been in the business of doing that. But if you take uh, one or two of the variables in isolation, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will go on to commit crime or indeed murder. Uh, The other thing with them is they can't form long-term relationships. So the last two serial killings in the United Kingdom that I've looked at, both perpetrators had multiple sexual partners because they weren't able to form a meaningful and loving sexual relationship. Whereas with sociopaths, and some of the traits are similar, in other words, outbursts of violence, sociopaths are different in that, generally speaking, they learn these behaviours, whereas psychopaths, generally speaking, it's innate, they're born like it. So those are the two material differences. But why it's important is this, is that most populations have uh, 1 to 2% of people that exhibit, uh, present quite high on the psychopathy scale, 1 to 2%. Whereas when you start examining people in prison, prison populations, that goes up to 25%. So there's a material difference and change. If you accept that 25% of the prison population are psychopaths, that means you have to treat them within the criminal justice system differently. 
right the way from because a lot of people, as you well know, Jack, when they come out of prison, they reoffend. So if you've got a prisoner in a in a police station, you've got to make sure that the police interview is commensurate for a psychopath. You've got to make sure that if the police are dealing with a kidnap or a hostage situation, is the person that's doing the hostage negotiation can quickly tell whether they're a psychopath and then make the whole thing about them. <laughs> what I find fascinating is, um, you know, we talk about how these people can't really, you know, hold down relationships or they, you know, they also, they talk about, you know, people with these tendencies, not really having empathy for anyone like that. Yet we'll go back to the Ted Bundy example. People always used to say he was extremely charming. And I find that fascinating that you've got someone who has no empathy for people when it comes to, you know, pain or loss or anything like that and can't have these long-term meaningful relationships, yet they can come across you know, with this facade of charm and, and, and uh, people warm to them. It's terrifying, really. I, I found that. That's a really, really interesting point. I found that uh, either by direct experience, uh, first-hand knowledge, uh, primary evidence, if you like, and by research, a lot of these people are charming. And the other thing that I watched, on, and I was mesmerised by this on um, Netflix, is a programme called The Tinder Swindler. And I would I would urge yeah, if anyone's yeah. in, in psychopathy is to watch that. And every time um, some he's exhibiting psychopathic behaviour is to record that and the type of it, uh, because this guy was very very charming and he was charming women out of uh, millions of pounds of of their own personal money and their assets, which leads me on to that you can have someone. And that's, this is why they're dangerous. They can be dangerous. You can have a psychopath that is firing on all four cylinders on the psychopathy scale, working in a business and actually wrecking that business without committing any criminal offences at all. Uh, things like putting rumour around, uh, mucking up systems, and they will do it because they can do it. But the charm bit is really, really interesting because I'll give you an example of that in my early days. I was a, a young detective up in the West End of London. It was a hot day. We're in the summer here in the UK. I walked around the corner uh, out of uniform. I didn't wear a uniform particularly. And there was a guy committing a terrible attack with a claw hammer. It was a, uh, a gay pub, an early gay pub. You're talking early 80s. Uh, and this guy was hitting these guys over the head with a hammer, with a claw hammer. So... You know, I had to do something about it. What do you do if you try and disarm him? You're going to end up injured anyway. Within minutes, the police were there and he had he had gone. Very soon afterwards, I tracked him down. He was arrested. The forensic evidence was good. But he was absolutely charming, really charming. And I'll give you an example, a profound example. I went to court one day uh, and I went down and he said, oh, I need to have a word with you. Can you come over here? He said, your tie's not straight. You know, which is bizarre. You know, he's just assaulted all these poor young men. And he's saying to me, come over here, your tie's not straight. And he starts straightening my tie. Uh, yeah, I mean, really, that's, really that's, terror, that's terrifying. But I mean, it's funny. I, I um, One guy I'm interviewing at the moment, um, he's currently incarcerated in um, in a Panamanian prison. Um, he He's in there for quintuple homicide. 
And yeah. I mean, he says that he he was a um, a hitman for a Panamanian cartel. Now he's a very likable. I mean, it's probably it's bad for me to say, but I actually I actually like the guy. You know, he's actually he's very funny, very articulate, uh, and we have very interesting conversation. But is ego? We talked about you mentioned ego before. Is ego a big thing when it comes to psychopaths? Because I feel like I mean, he does have. Uh, a very inflated ego of himself and he says he was the most sought after hitman and he really inflates his story about his achievements so to speak uh, very much so it's this egocentricity and i'll give you an example here in the uk there's a chap called uh levi belfield an infamous serial killer who was operating when i was in my uh living in london i don't live in london anymore was operating in by killing young women in the area that i was living in uh, and I had three young daughters at the time, so this was sort of quite worrying. Uh, anyway, uh, due to some brilliant detection work by a really good friend of mine, who's quite infamous over here in the UK at the moment on the TV, uh, he brought this guy, Levi Belfield, to, to justice, and he got three whole life sentences. Millie Dowler was last seen alive walking along this road near the station in Walton-on-Thames. The man who today has been charged with her kidnap and murder, Levi Belfield, was living at the time with his girlfriend in this block of flats right next to the road. A woman who believes she was attacked by the serial killer, Levi Belfield. The attack had similarities to the murders of Amelie Delagrange, Marcia McDonnell and schoolgirl Millie Dowler, for which Belfield is serving two life terms. The first was 13-year-old Millie Dowler, who disappeared while walking home from school in Walton-on-Thames in 2002. 19-year-old Marsha McDonnell was killed in Richmond in 2003. A few months later, Belfield deliberately ran over 18-year-old Kate Sheedy in Isleworth, but she survived. In August 2004, 22-year-old French student Amélie Delagrange was bludgeoned to death on Twickenham Green. He started, um, first, first of all, he's changed his religion. That's absolutely fine in prison. He, uh, and this is all to bring attention to himself, to his ego, to feed into his ego. He's asked uh, for authority to get married, which the prison authorities refused. He got a, a solicitor and a barrister involved, and they said, if you don't let him get married, we're going to sue you. And he was right. So these things, and then now after this marriage, he's he's all, and that is another subject, Jack, on its own. It's called brisophilia, is where people get married to people uh, that are serving time for murder or serious sexual offences, and they're attracted to women, or women are attracted to them, which is really, really bizarre. Anyway, um, and now he started admitting other offences. Uh, murder cases, just merely so attention is directed to, to him. It's, it's almost, and I don't want to get necessarily into it, it's almost like Munchausen's syndrome. You know, it's all about me. You know, it's all about me. Yeah. yeah but and ego is, is, is a big thing. Yeah, yeah. it's funny, funny you used to say that because now this gentleman I'm speaking to in the prison he's in has become the prison's chaplain. It's almost like he needed another avenue to be sort of like recognized and you know he leads church services and all the rest of it so he's again front and center in his surroundings that he's in now just just going back to your and it's something i've learned today is it would be interesting really uh for someone like myself or you to actually write some material 
called like the charming murderer, if you like, because there's so many cases. And if you could actually produce the cases and then give it evidence of the charm, it would take away this idea of the man jumping out the bushes because uh, killing someone, which is not the case, as we know. I've seen it time and time again with uh, people that have committed serious assaults, murders, and uh, they are very charming. And as a police officer, you have to keep saying to yourself, they're charged with murder. <laughs> Uh, you sent me through some great um, information, uh, and one of those was a, a little test, uh, I believe. There's a, a series of questions where you sort of strongly disagree, disagree, agree. Can you just talk us through that that test itself? Yeah. Um, that First of all, that is um, – I don't claim that to be my work. That is the work. And if people are – if your listeners are interested in uh, psychopaths, one of the world's leading experts is a guy called Professor Robert Eyre, H-A-R-E, and he's written loads and loads of books. My favourite is a book called Snakes in Suits. Uh, and that is uh, exemplifying people that are working for companies uh, that are exhibiting psychopathic behaviour and how they react uh, and interact at work. And he came up with this thing called the psychopathy checklist. And there's a number of different ones. Uh, and the one you did is called the shortened version. But you need to be... Uh, there's a bit of caution with this because that's what uh, I do a lot of lecturing at universities and indeed in schools. And what I don't want is someone going out and saying, oh, you know, I've done the test and I'm a psychopath because it doesn't <laughs> lock me up what it, before it, I kill someone. Yeah, yeah, lock me up before I commit offences. <laughs> but what, does, what that does show, uh, it shows tendencies. And what you need to do when you're doing that uh, in conjunction with that um psychology uh sorry that's yeah psychopath checklist and yours is the sv uh short version there's a children's version uh and there's lo lo lots of others there's a longer one what you need to do is to apply whether the person has been involved in any antisocial personality disorder that means looking at antisocial personality disorder is around Things like truanting, not going to school, being rude to your parents. You know, we're all rude to our parents, but going that further step, low-level assault, low-level damage, damaging things, inappropriate swearing, inappropriate behaviour before the age of 15 or 15 and below, and then assessing it from 18 years of age and above. So you need all of that material uh, to be able to make a proper, so a psychologist, in some cases a psychiatrist would want all of that information having said that that does give uh, some really interesting markers and that psychology oh, sorry that psychopath checklist has taught me a load of things and that is actually to ask people how they are because innately i forget to do that um so it's you know uh, but yeah you can do that and i mean if you I can actually, if you want to, right now, as I can give you um, my website where people can do the test themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Should I say that? Yeah, to go for it. It's really sure. easy. It's uh, the crime lab, thecrimelab.co.uk forward slash test. Please do take that with a bit of a pinch of salt. <laughs> and even if you score highly, there is no evidence whatsoever that indicates that you will go on to commit criminal offences. <laughs> 
Uh, well, I mean, I scored a 12 out of, in that test, which uh, I believe it said that uh, a person exhibits some demonstrable psychopathic tendencies such as uh, ego, <laughs> egocentricity. Well, I've been a radio announcer for 14 years and now have my own podcast, so there's a lot of ego involved there. Uh, and cold-heartedness, and my wife has always said I'm a little bit cold. So, so to that extent then, there might be some uh, accuracy there. It could, be, it could be. It could be. It could be pretty close. Luckily, I only scored a twelve. Speaking of workplaces and you know um, psychopathic tendencies of people in workplaces, I know there's there's been a number of people in the medical industry who have become medical uh, serial killers. Uh, there's a, a famous one, Doctor Swango, over in the United States, who killed many many people. Is there a profession these people tend to gravitate towards? A really interesting one is what. Um we do. Can I just go, uh, and I'm going to give you a full answer there, which is I hope your listeners will find quite exciting, is I've just done a lecture called Doctors and Nurses, Do We Still Trust Them? <laughs> so that leads nicely into answering your question. There is an incremental, and I want to be clear about this, because, you know, over here in the UK, we've got the most marvellous national health system under a lot of pressure at the moment. But the overwhelming majority of people that work in there are caring people and they join however because of things and so i've been measuring this and there is a big big case going on in the uk at the moment a serial killing case that's been uh, tried uh, from october last year and it's is to do with a nurse that's allegedly killed million children uh, babies it's huge over here and the jury went out yesterday so I think they'll probably be out for a week or so looking at the evidence. This was Lucy Letby's last day on the witness stand, during which the prosecution called the former neonatal nurse a liar and a murderer. Today, it was alleged in court that their mother visited the neonatal unit at the very moment that child E was being attacked. Uh, she didn't realise at the time uh, what was supposedly happening. Now, she found her son in an acutely distressed state, jurors heard. Uh, she was apparently told by Miss Letby that the blood uh, from his mouth was due to a tube, and she also allegedly said, trust me, I'm a nurse. Uh, that child would die just a few hours later. Over 14 days, Lucy Letby gave evidence, answered questions and vigorously denied all of the charges against her. But a lot of these people will gravitate towards the uh, caring industries for these reasons. First of all, they often do not fit into society. So they could be displaying, going back to psychopathy, they might be having problems forming relationships. And in the National Health Service, there is a huge esprit de corps. The reason I know that is when I've been, uh, when I was accepted for the police service, when I got back to the UK, um, I had about six months before I got in and I actually worked at a hospital, which I loved. So there's a great speed to core. But even as a porter at the time, and life has changed, there is access to victims because they're under your care. You're looking. Yeah. So there is almost a done-for-you set of people that uh, could be victims. And going with that is the opportunity. I, could, I remember going back to my times as a, uh, as a, as a porter in central London that even then I could have had access or I could have stolen uh, drugs and it probably wouldn't have been spotted. I know it's a lot tighter now. But then 
further than that, the extra layer is the ability then to know medically how to how to kill someone. And the case that I'm talking about, we need to be a bit careful because there's been no conviction. But with Shipman, he saw um, very early on in his life that his mother, who'd got terminal cancer, was being treated with heroin and morphine. It was known as Brompton mixture. And the whole idea is to give uh, pain relief. But he soon learned that by giving an additional shot, that was going to kill someone. And nurses are aware of that, all the different things to kill people with, whether that be air in the system, whether it be using uh, too much adrenaline, using too much uh, insulin. So people do gravitate towards these things, or whilst they're in, uh, they they find out, or it's a lot easier uh, to kill someone than the person getting away with that because that person has been in hospital and it might it might say that it's been expected that the person was going to die. So they can literally get away with murder. Yeah. So they do gravitate towards that. And very, very sadly over here, and I actually hang my head in shame, there is a lot of cases uh, where violent people including murder and serious sexual offence is prevalent in the police service in England at the moment. We're having the most horrendous time. I've just done a big television programme, which came out a couple of weeks ago, and and the perpetrator was a chap called Wayne Cousins. And he was a serving Metropolitan Police officer who murdered a poor, poor young woman called Sarah Everard. Uh, And I did for that programme, I did the psychology you can see it, it's on YouTube, it's called Wayne Cousins, Killer in Plain Sight. And what that does do is that gives you an insight of how this guy used the police service to further his own criminal ends. Do you have anything about what happened tonight? I know that um, she went missing up in um, London somewhere um, what, about a week ago or so, uh, just from what I've got on the news. A serving Metropolitan Police officer has been arrested on suspicion of murder following the disappearance of a woman in South London a week ago. Sarah Everard, who was 33, was making her way home from a friend's house. A wholly blameless victim of grotesquely executed crimes. Sarah Everard's final hours said the judge as bleak and agonising as it's possible to imagine. For that, Wayne Cousins will never be released from prison. The second concerns Wayne Cousins, who pleaded guilty to kidnap and rape of Sarah Everard, and later he pleaded guilty to her murder. On the 30th of September 2021, he was sentenced to imprisonment for life for the murder with a whole life order. Cousins seeks leave to appeal against sentence. In his case, We grant leave to appeal against sentence, but dismiss the appeal. One of the things that's always, again, fascinated me from my field of expertise and study is victimology as well. So is looking at uh, why suspects go for particular homogenous groups. And one of the things that I've found in the UK is the incremental rise in the murder of gay young men. Uh, Not a massive rise, but there nevertheless has been. 
that's the credit of the there's 43 different police forces in the United Kingdom. Most of them have made real efforts to speak to the gay communities uh, to try and minimise uh, a wild card coming within their midst. Uh, so I'm particularly impressed with uh, with with that behaviour. I do want to touch on the side on on lying and detecting detection of lying um, because you know and there's a couple of facets to this that I want to talk about but I want to start with a very interesting thing I, I read in, in the, again in the stuff that you sent me was regarding police officers and especially ones who have been in the job for a long time having this overinflated idea of their ability to tell if someone is lying which is fascinating because in a lot of the cases I deal with there's a number of cases of, of wrongful convictions where police were convinced that they knew this person was guilty they were the one that they were looking for uh, and they they could tell that they were lying and all this stuff I spoke to a gentleman recently who calls it the you know uh, the uh, Sherlock effect uh, where police and people in these authority positions believe they have these abilities to be able to pick a liar or to see what's happened and that sort of stuff. It's fascinating. And you, you talk about that in, in your work as well. Uh, let me preface this conversation by some, uh, some fun here. This subject is not by any means fun and I would never trivialise it. But I've taken a polygraph test twice, both told a pack of lies and got away with it. Okay? <laughs> so I know that's quite introspective and it's particularly unscientific. But for that reason, we were asked to... Uh, joined the uh, inaugural set of British Society of Polygraphers, which we refused to do. But what, again, has interested me is that, take this analogy, if you took 20 seasoned detectives uh, from the street and then you got 20 people that were true crime enthusiasts and gave them two uh, crimes to investigate as groups, so police officers and non-police officers, there's been a lot of research around that, and there is no difference between the outcomes. Which I thought, oh my god, I got to, I did all this detective work, <laughs> and you could get you could get uh, John Doe, as they say in the states, off the streets. So you could do the same thing. Who's, who's going to sur- surpass me? But there, uh, and the research that I send you is is ongoing, and I think it's dangerous as psychologists to look at one piece of search in isolation and agree with it and accept it as the norm, but. There's been a lot of research that says that the police are absolutely no better at detecting lies uh, than anyone else, anyone else at all. So it boils down to that excellent question that you asked earlier on is, I'm, you know, I, I thought as an arrogant young police officer that that person's telling me lies and, you know, my mum used to say after I'd nick something out of the fridge or some confectionery, look me in the eye and tell me, tell me the truth. And again, there are markers, there are markers where you can tell that people are lying, but there is no reliable situation. Because just imagine, Jack, if we could detect lies throughout the whole criminal justice system in every country, look at the money that you would save. And look at the conviction rate and the uh, the correct conviction rate. And of course, there are cases where people have told lies and people have been convicted and there's been wrongful convictions, uh, you know, even executions all over the world. So that is the first thing to say. And uh, the research that I sent you said it gets worse. So as I get on in service... Uh, they found that the new recruits were a lot better at detecting lies than the old sweats, if you like, to coin an old thing. But overall, 
the police would know better at detecting lies than, um, you know, members of the public. So then, and this is the bit that really, really excites me, and I do get excited by uh, criminal psychology, and, you know, I'm, I'm in a position where something new that's been researched or has been reported on, I can read it at will. And there is a lot around now. It's not so much the physiological signs. So let's just say we were hooked up to a, a, a lie detector and at the same time you're looking for cues as to whether I'm lying. I might be touching my nose because I'm lying. Equally, I might be touching my nose because it's itchy. I might be looking up to the left-hand side because I'm trying to draw some lines down. E equally, I might do that. So you need to look for something else which is more reliable. You touched on there the um, polygraph or the lie detector machine. I've actually tried to get many a uh, expert, so to speak, or someone who does this to come on the show and, and sort of talk to me about it and its accuracy, but uh, they're, they're not, they won't come on and talk to me about it, which is <laughs> weird. And I know the reason there. <laughs> Because it's, it's junk because science. It's not, it's not reliable. Yeah. There's also, if you look at some of the stuff I sent you on polygraphs, let's just say your wife or your partner has been murdered and you're hooked up to a polygraph test straight away, your physiological signs and your thinking is going to be say, look, I didn't murder my partner, but they might think I did. So therefore, you might get a false positive. Yeah. And that's the danger uh, with that, and that's a classic case. And if you look at two-thirds of all murders in the UK are domestic abuse, and you start hooking the partners up and they're innocent, you're going to get the wrong sort of reading. Uh, here in the UK, we've been down our Home Affairs or our Home Secretary, who ended up as our Prime Minister, uh, Mrs May, actually looked at um, introducing polygraphs into the criminal justice system. It was a disaster. I just want to end on this one. I don't know whether you've got any thoughts or your knowledge on this. Do you know why people are so fascinated with crime and true crime and, and psychopaths and, and why we, you know, the, these shows on Netflix about Ted Bundy and all these others, they go through the roof and people are loving it and they get binge it and all the rest of it. I mean, obviously without it, I wouldn't have a job. But do you know why people are so fascinated with this this area? Yeah, I do. I have the privilege of working uh, with my wife, uh, Kate, who was, a, uh, who was also a police officer, and my three daughters. And my um, uh, middle daughter, Lizzie, has done some research on the question that you just asked. And these are the results, uh, which is fascinating. So our methodology was to ask this question on Facebook. And uh, so we asked for a few things, gender, age, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then we did it on LinkedIn. So we were then looking for a much older professional audience. But the results were largely the same. First of all, the people that are consuming this people, uh, this material and in our industry for leisure is 95% female. 95%. That is huge. Yeah, my, my, huge. my podcast analytics would agree with you. Yeah. So then you've got to start asking some questions why that is. Uh, and then what we did is we looked at uh, the British Association of Viewing Figures, you know, and consistently every week in the United Kingdom, crime is always at the top, followed by cooking. Anyway, we've got an idea. We, we're going to do this thing called uh, coffee and crime. So we're going to do an online thing where we're going to send people cake and we'll talk about cases. So you've got two. 
But so we then wanted to find out why. And most people are intrigued by it because, for lots of reasons, but largely speaking, a lot of this is new. It would it would be certainly in my day uh, before the net and the advent of social media, you couldn't access any of this material. You could get a court report. Uh, the police are a lot more open now uh, with what they're doing, so you can get a lot of this material. But distilled and an answer to your question, most people want to dip into it. It's an intrigue. That intrigue can go further. Uh, and I'm writing a novel at the moment where it goes from intrigue to someone actually committing uh, serial offences. And what people want to do is to find out all these different stories and methodologies. And I think it goes back to a, a basic human psychology is to see how bad we are. Uh, and Freud, and I agree with him, said we've all got a death instinct in us. And he called it thalantos. And I actually agree with that. And I think a lot of people want to dalliance with that. Uh, but most people want to do want to dip into crime. They want to see how it's investigated, see how depraved people are and put it down. That doesn't mean stop consuming it, but leaving it to uh, the professionals. I mean, one of the questions we could ask, could have asked is, do you want to, would you like to be a, um, you like consuming this material? Would you like to become a forensic psychologist or a police officer or something like that to see whether they're actually consuming it for something that they want to do in the future? But that's not the case. Yeah, right. So, yeah, not a really full answer there, but I think the gender imbalance there says a lot. Uh, and the reason why they're consuming it is is out of intrigue and uh, looking at it, consuming it, and then leaving it to the professionals to examine and also coming up, we all think we're clever. Oh, totally. Is and it's coming, and that's another thing. I mean, serial killers aren't clever. The I've done a lot of work on that. Their IQ is much lower than the uh, average pop in population, so they want to get caught. That's rubbish as well. Uh, but yeah, so that's yeah, that's the that's the situation with that. Yeah. Now I know I said it was my last question, but one one final question because obviously the whole point of my you know with with my show I interview men and women who have been incarcerated for most of them, I say ninety five percent of them are for murders. And you know, as we said, you know, the people listening love to play detective and listen to see if they can hear lies and and whether they're a bit telling the truth. Is is there some telltale signs that people can listen out for when they're listening to the stories as to whether someone's telling the truth or not? No. <laughs> to, to beat you down there, the answer is no. And uh, we have a system, um, trial by jury, uh, not the greatest system, oh, but it is system. a system. I hate the jury system. Uh, that works. I mean, you've got to, but you've got to, and the, the good news is you've got to get, get evidence beyond all reasonable doubt. Sometimes there are um, uh, convictions that go wrong, but you've really got to be, you've got to, you've got to look at it based on the evidence. And that's the only way you can do it. Of course, there are telltale signs, whether someone's lying, uh, there's cues. You know, the, the US will, will argue that, um, you know, polygraphs are a useful part of that investigation. As a tool, uh, perhaps they are. And I hate to use this expression, but a police officer's got um, a tool bag of the way they can get hold of evidence. But eyewitness testimony has been proved to be fallible. Yeah. Uh, is uh, is not good. People actually think they're seeing something when, in fact, they're not. 
So there is no easy answer to uh, telltale signs that someone's telling lies. And, you know, I've seen all sorts of things on Netflix, on the TV, which are great, are great fun but not very helpful when it comes to pure detective work. Well, there you go. We'll still just have to all play the guessing game and, as you say, look at the evidence. And, uh, I mean, I tell you what, although you look at uh, some of the cases that we cover on the show, there's evidence is uh, it's very weak in some of the cases where a jury is sentenced to someone to life in prison. Yeah, I mean, the final word on that, and, I, you know, uh, I've been to court uh, in the past with very scant evidence and juries have convicted I've been to court with overwhelming evidence and the jury come back and find them not guilty. Uh, over here, we are not allowed to investigate uh, or do any empirical studies as to how jurors derive their decisions. Oh, that's interesting. It's illegal here. Uh, and, of course, I'd love to, I'd love to know oh, that. Look at the absolutely. relation with conviction, how long the juror are out for, what did they consider, uh, were they at loggerheads with people? Did they come up with a verdict just to save time? Well, There's uh, loads of questions. Yeah, I mean, oh. it's, it's fascinating. And I, I, because I'm a big, I, I hate the jury system ever since doing what I do. I just think it's so fraught with just absolute flaws through the whole thing. People who don't want to be there, people who don't understand the law. I mean, the next question you need to then ponder, and maybe it's something for listeners, is if no, if you don't have a jury system, what are the alternatives? Steve, absolutely fascinating. I could talk to you about this for yeah, another four really hours. Yeah, it's good talking to you. Uh, and it's, you know, uh, thanks to, you know, sort of IT, that you know, two different continents. Yes, the same sort of interest we can have a chat you're you know, having a, you're having good. a tea and i'm having a beer that's you know <laughs> steve thank you so much indeed we'll put all the links to your website and all the rest of it uh, in the show notes of this episode so people can check everything out you do uh it's been absolutely uh, an absolute joy to to chat with you so i really appreciate your time mate absolute pleasure and thank you I want to say a huge thank you to Steve for uh, taking time out of his busy schedule to uh, sit down and chat with me about this subject. You can find all the details about Steve and the Crime Lab uh, in the show notes of this episode. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.